Good morning. It's lovely to see you all. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is um, James. Um, Jack Black, who was that? Every time. Um, I'm married to, uh, to Jane, who is somewhere around here. I think she's with Leo. Um, and we have a son, Leo. Um, and they're both here cheering me on. They were going to be here cheering me on at the front. They've disappeared. Um, one of them will be more loud than the other. Um, I have the great privilege of being on staff here at South Sunday Vineyard. Um, and Neil and Kate have asked me to share with you all this morning uh, to continue the series which we began last week on forgiveness. Um, before, before we begin, though, can, um, can I just pray and invite the Holy Spirit? And what I'd like us to do is actually just to wait for um, about a minute just uh, for the Lord to speak to us individually and so just to quieten our hearts a little bit. So um, if you want to, you can close your eyes. You can sit your hands out if you want to do that, um, whatever you want to do, just to help you focus on the Lord. So um, I'll pray and then let's just wait a minute and then I'll pray at the end of that. So come, Holy Spirit. Come speak to us this morning. Reveal to us what you have for us as individuals. Lord Jesus, we are desperate for you. We're desperate for you to speak to us this morning. That's why we're here. We're here to to meet with you, to worship you, to give you everything you deserve. So would you come and show us what it is you have for us this morning. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles. We're not going to read it right away, but um, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18. Um, We'll look at that in a minute. About a year ago, somebody who I value and respect and care about um, greatly said something to me, an offhand comment, which deeply hurt me. In that moment, I snapped, and I got very angry and, uh, and upset. And as the dust settled from that initial moment... And because I'm a follower of Jesus, I forgave them, as you do, water off a duck's back. And pretty soon after, if not immediately, I decided out of my own will not to collect on the debt that was owed to me. I had released this person, but I was not able to release myself. And I'm not sure I even knew it in my head at the time. And 10 months went by, 
and I was still stuck. And if anything, things had gotten worse. I was ultimately racked by emotions that I wasn't really fully aware of, and top of the list was sadness and anger. And even if I wasn't ready to realize it or admit it, my relationship with, with that person was, was strained, and it was affecting me in ways that I couldn't understand at the time. It was affecting my relationship not only with that person, but emotions were all also leaking out with my wife Jane, with my family, with friends. I was upset with myself for not dealing with it well. I was even upset with, with life for not being fair. And to be honest, I was upset with God. Did you not see this coming? Then over um, the summer, I began reading um, this book called, by a guy called um, Peter Schizero. I know a bunch of people in the church are reading it. Um, some of his books called the book's called Emotionally Healthy Church and I started on a journey which I am still very much in the middle of realising that I am in fact fairly unhealthy when it comes to my emotions and as I began to engage with um, what Pete Scazzaro calls emotionally healthy spirituality I began to realise that when you are hurt by somebody not if you were hurt by somebody, but when you were hurt by somebody, releasing them from the debt that is owed to you is just level one of forgiving. You're still not even close to done with your work yet. Level two is about releasing your own heart from the pain. You have to find a way in partnership with Jesus and in, community, in the community of Jesus in a church like this to get your heart free and healthy. And ideally, in a dream case scenario, to leverage the evil that was done to you and in somehow, in like a judo-Jesus-style kind of way, turn it on its head for good. Now, when that, when that clicked for me, and I engaged with it properly, I got unstuck. Now, it wasn't fast, it wasn't easy, it was... It was slow and hard, but I had Jesus out in front of me because, you see, this practice, and I would argue more than any other, is straight out of the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. So let's look at Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter, it should appear up here, there you go. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Now, this, just to give a little bit of context, in the first century, common rabbinic teaching was that you are to forgive your brother or sister up to seven times. So there was a limit. Like, you're not a doormat. You don't let people walk all over you. After about seven, you're done. And I'm reading between the lines here, but... My guess is that Peter has been following Jesus for a while now, and he has a sneaking suspicion that Jesus might not buy into this seven-time limit. Verse 22, Jesus answers, I tell you, not seven times, but what? Seventy-seven times. Or some translations have it seven times, 70, 70 times. Now, this is Jesus at his best. This is hyperbole, right? He's not saying keep an Excel spreadsheet. 
And when you get to 490, you're off the hook. It's, you know, it's not like at that point you're like, spouse, Jane, 491, I'm out. Now he's saying there's no limit. Jesus' end goal for all his followers, not just for Peter, but for you and for me, is to grow and mature into the kind of people who are forgiving by nature with no limit. And now when I read this, my first thought is like, hold on a minute. I want to raise my hand and I want to say, objection, Jesus, you don't know my pain. You don't know this scenario. You don't know what happened. You don't know the fine print. You don't know the contract. You don't know any of that. And Jesus, because he's basically the most brilliant teacher to ever live, does what a really good teacher does, and he anticipates your objection. And he tells a story. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like the king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, was brought to him. Now, that phrase, 10,000 bags of gold, in Greek it's 10,000 talents, which is a very large unit of measurement. So it was a massive sum, something, and somewhere in the region of what um, economists equate to billions of pounds, if not trillions of pounds. So the idea here is that it's an amount that nobody could ever pay back. Verse 25, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So that's the core idea of forgiving. There is a debt that is owed. Verse 26, that this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Now this again is lost in translation from ancient Greek to modern English. This is a joke. This is funny. If Jesus were here right now and he was telling this story, you'd be laughing. This story is like a minimum wage employee, someone who stacks shelves in a supermarket who owes a trillion pounds. And he just, all he's saying is, just give me time. I'll pay you back, I promise. It's not going to happen. Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, or that can be translated, forgave the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Now in Greek, that's a hundred denarii, and a denarius was a day's wages for a laborer. So this is about three three months' pay. It's a lot of money, but even on a servant's salary, it's well within your capacity to pay it back. Be patient with me, he said, and I'll pay it back. Exact same line. But he refused. Instead, he went off, had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all of your debt. One trillion dollars. All of yours, because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers until he could pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Notice that last phrase, meaning it's not enough to just cancel the debt. Again, you're still not done. If you then harbor anger or resentment in your heart, you have to find a way 
out of that. You have to find a way to forgive, a way to cancel the debt from your heart. And notice this is, this is demanded by Jesus. This, it's not like, hey, if you're in the mood. No, this is, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are commanded to forgive as you have been forgiven. And that's the key. Jesus is not asking you to do anything that he has not already done, with him, done himself. Turn, turn with me to Luke chapter 23. This is from verse 32. It's right before Jesus' death. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there along with these criminals. Now, was Jesus a criminal? No. He was an innocent victim. They crucify him with these criminals. One on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, strike them down, for they know what they are doing. No, he doesn't do that. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And when you read this, you think, wait, forgive who? Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing? Who's, who's they? Well, if you keep reading, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. They is the executioners. So I want us to just feel the full weight and gravity of this story. Here's Jesus dying on the cross, an innocent victim, carrying the full weight of injustice on his shoulders. At his feet are men who are not only not sorry for killing him, but they are gambling away his clothing, stripping him even of the dignity of that before his death. And the last words out of Jesus' mouth, Father, forgive them, for they have no clue what it is they're doing. And the idea here from the writer Luke is this. Listen, if Jesus is willing to forgive the very men who are killing him, how much more willing is he to forgive you and me? That's what Jesus is like. And by default, that is what God is like. So when you and I are commanded by Jesus to follow his example and forgive. It's rooted in his day-to-day life, rooted in what God has already done for you and for me. One more. Why don't you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. This idea runs all the way through the New Testament. If you've, ever, if you've never read Ephesians before, it's, um, it's a first-century letter written by Paul, um, follower of Jesus in, to, to followers of Jesus in the city of Ephesus. And After three chapters of writing about what Christ has done for you and for me in the past, he shifts gears to what we are meant to do in the present and future. Take a look at the the end of chapter 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, how how do we stop grieving the Holy Spirit of God? Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. And some of us look at this and go, that's not relevant to me. I don't don't get into random pub brawls. But do we make a sarcastic comment? Do we gossip? Do we whisper behind somebody's back? That is what Paul is talking about here. And you see how the writer Paul ties the two together. Everything within us as humans wants to separate out when we are at odds with a coworker or a parent or a sibling or a friend or an ex-friend from our relationship with God. 
But it just doesn't work that way. Everything is interconnected. You're a whole person, and how you relate is how you relate. That's why unforgiveness is not only an emotional, but also a spiritual blockage. Some of you in this room are stuck. Again, not only emotionally, you are stuck spiritually. And there's a distance between you and God himself. And there's no guilt or shame here. But part of that distance has to do with the distance between you and other people. It's all interconnected. And when we're at odds with somebody else, when we harbor anger, bitterness, rage, gossip, when we harbor that in our heart, we grieve the Holy Spirit. We cut off our relationship, not only with another person, but with God himself. Instead, it says in verse 32, we are to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Don't just release the debt. Go to the next level. Love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the call. If you are a follower of Jesus, as many in this room are, the call is to follow his example of forgiving as we have been forgiven. Right, let's take a pause for a second. Then we're going to look at our working definition of forgiveness. So here's our working definition of forgiveness from Gary Brashears. It should appear up there. There you go. Um, We looked at some of this last week. My personal act to release the one who sinned against me from my personal right to collect on the moral debt to pay them back for their offense. Instead of giving them back the pain they gave me, I absorb the pain into myself with God's help. Let's read that second half again. Instead of giving them the pain, giving them back the pain they gave me, I absorb the pain into myself with God's help. Last week, Neil was looking at the first half of that definition, um, and this week we're going to be looking at the second half of it. Again, there are two levels to forgiveness. Level one is about releasing someone from the debt that is owed to you. Level two is about releasing our own heart from its pain. Level one is about them. Level two is about you. Level one is about the past. Level two is about the present and the future. Now, as we unpack this, we need to also realize that there are at least four dimensions or aspects to forgiving. First off, forgiving others is, is forgiving others for hurting us. Forgiving your ex-husband or your ex-wife or your ex-fiancé or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or the father who abandoned you or the mother who was hyper-perfectionist and critical and overbearing or always told you you were never good enough or just a co-worker for a sarcastic dig at the water cooler or whatever it is. And that's what most of us think about when we think of forgiving. And that is the first thing that comes to mind. Oh, I was wronged by so-and-so. I was hurt by this or that. But that's just the first dimension. The second dimension is forgiving ourselves for making a mess of things. Am I the only person in this room who makes bad decisions from time to time? Apparently I am. (laughs) I'm also the only person who's honest here. (laughs) Um, And there are times, do you you ever find you, you just beat yourself up over that stupid decision? 
over that moment of weakness, over that bad judgment call. Ah, James, you're such an idiot. You've made a mess of your own life and you, you want to blame somebody else. And if you're honest, you're not the victim, you're the perpetrator. Now you have to live with the consequences of your own freedom. Third category is forgiving life for being unfair. One of the first things that all parents have to teach their children is that life is not fair. My brother-in-law, who's here actually today, I didn't know they were going to be here, uh, they've got three, three kids, they're aged 12, 8, and 5, and the oldest gets to stay up later than the others. He gets to play video games, he gets to watch more TV, and the other two, but particularly the middle, middle one, is like, it's, it's not fair, you know? Why can't I stay up? Why can't I do that? And as parents, we just, we just have, that's just the way it is. Life is not fair. And it doesn't change very much as we get older. Why do they have health and I have that chronic illness? Why are they born into the picture-perfect family and I don't even know who my dad is? Why did they grow up in wealth and go to the best school and, and they're really lazy? And here am I, I've got this intellect or whatever and I get none of that. Why do they have privilege and I don't have privilege? And there's a part of us that gets, that it's really easy for us to get angry about this and to let that anger corrode the inner lining of your heart. The fourth category is forgiving God for not saving us the way we think he should have. Now, I just want to clarify my language here because I cringe just to even hear that sentence out loud. Um, we hear this, I think, more and more these days. I hear people say, oh, I'm just forgiving God for whatever. And it just doesn't, it doesn't sit very well with me. It feels like entitlement to me. It feels like blasphemy. It feels like bad theology. It feels like blaming God for things he, he isn't responsible for. And half the time, we're the ones who are responsible for it. And yet, if I'm honest, even if you don't have that sort of sense of entitlement, even if you don't have bad theology, even if you're, you're not blaming God, can we all be honest and that most of us, pretty much all of us, at times are angry with God. God, did you not see this coming? I was fasting, I was praying. You could have warned me. I was there. It's not like I was just watching Netflix or something. But why, God, why, why did you allow this to happen? Why would you not warn me? Or you promised me this. You gave me multiple prophecies about what you were going to do through me, and you haven't done it. And so often we harbor feelings of anger, not only to other people, not only to ourselves, not only at life for being unfair, we harbor feelings of anger even at God. And if you nurse a grudge at God, you cut yourself off from the one true source of comfort and healing and freedom, and you move in exact, the exact opposite direction of life. 
My point is that there are at least four dimensions to forgiving. Forgiving others, forgiving ourselves, forgiving life for being unfair, forgiving God. And what I mean by that is dealing with our feelings of anger towards him. And none of us get to opt out of this practice of forgiving because we all get hurt in life. All of us. Some of us more than others, for sure. But nobody comes into adulthood unwounded. If you think that you are unwounded, the odds are you are just not very self-aware. Psychologists call children pre-neurotic. That is why your child loves you if you are their mother or father. They don't realize how much you've messed them up yet. <laughs> it's one of the most humbling things for me, becoming a father, is to recognize that no matter how good of a father I am, I will hurt and wound Leo. Now, hopefully a lot less than the next guy, but I will hurt my son. I will wound him, which is why apologizing to your children is so important. There you go, he agrees. <laughs> oh dear. You have to model this for your children because we will hurt our children. You will wound your children. So my goal as a dad is just to raise my, my kids to need as little therapy as possible. But, but they will need it. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. My point is all of us, whether you come from the picture-perfect family, I had and I have a great and wonderful mum and dad who are part of this church, or whether you came from trauma, we all come into this life wounded at least a little bit beat up, a little bit stomped on, treated unfairly, at least once or twice, if not a whole lot more, ignored, rejected, demeaned. We are all wounded and in pain. And that pain, if it's not dealt with, it does not go away. It just goes under the surface and it leaks out, usually at the people who are closest to us, usually at your family if you have one or your brother, or your sister, or your spouse, or your own child. And it leaks out as anger, as, as violence at times, or just as a spirit of sarcasm in your home, or as a dig, or as gossip, or as a cold shoulder. My point is, the question isn't, how do you get through life without being hurt? It's not going to happen. The question is, when you are hurt, how do you deal with it? Again, it's not, how do you get through life without being wounded? No, it's when you are wounded, how will you deal with it? When you are hurt or wounded by other people, by your own bad decisions, by life in general, the economy, global warming, climate, whatever it is, or even your view of God, what then? We have to figure out a way to deal with our hurt because, listen carefully, what we don't transform we transmit. And as the saying goes, hurt people hurt. And there is more truth in that than most of us realize. There's data now behind that. On a sociological, psychological, criminal science level, something like, depending on which study you read, at least low estimate, 90% of abusers were themselves abused sexual, physical, mental, emotional. But the follow-up to that 
And here's the beautiful healing truth is that not all hurt people hurt. The clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson observes that almost all sexual predators were themselves preyed upon as children. Yet not all people who were molested go on to be molesters. Most don't. So some of us are wounded, whether it's in that way or another. Again, minor or major. And we internalize that wound and it goes under the surface. And in time, we just pass it on through generational sin to our own children, to somebody next to us, to somebody that we love. Other people are wounded, but they find a way to absorb that evil into their own body. And they stop, they stop it dead in its tracks. Tolstoy, in his writing on violence and nonviolence, called this breaking the chain of evil. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. later picked up on Tolstoy's language and used it in the civil rights movement. And they both, one dealing with communism and class, the other dealing with the civil rights movement and racial injustice, systemic injustice in the USA, they both made the point that all of humanity, from two co-workers in a spat at the office to two nations under threat of nuclear war, all of humanity is locked in a vicious cycle of tit for tat. You hurt me, I'll hurt you back. You gossip about me, I make fun of you. You make a sarcastic comment about me, I shame you on social media. You steal my promotion, I sabotage your career. You fly an airplane into my building, I invade your country. You make one comment about me on Twitter, I rain down fire and fury in a best-selling book. Whatever it is, this is the vicious cycle of the human condition in our culture. And there is one and only way to break this vicious cycle, and it is not to pay back in kind. It is not with violence. Jesus made this crystal clear. All violence, literal or symbolic, all it can do is keep evil in check. But it cannot deal with the root problem of evil in the human heart. The way to break the vicious cycle is through nonviolence, self-sacrificial forgiving, or through the way of Jesus. Level one, through releasing someone from the debt that is owed to you. But also level two, through absorbing that ugly thing in your own self. And then finding a way to transform it into something beautiful for the world. Ronald Rollheiser said this, any pain or tension that we do not transform, we will transmit. In the face of jealousy, hatred, anger, we must be like water purifiers, holding the poisons and toxins inside of us and giving back only the pure water. Rather than being like electrical cords that pass on energy that flows through them, the natural instinctive temptation in the face of anger and jealousy, bitterness and hatred is to give back in kind. You hate me, I will hate you. But we are invited to something higher. When you are hurt, when you are wounded, it's like there are two roads. And the low road is that you pay back in kind. Oh yeah, well, here's this. And at best, you keep evil in check for a bit. And that, by the way, is only if you have a bigger stick. Otherwise, you just, you just get beat up. But at best, you keep evil in check. And at worst, and far more likely, you ratchet the evil up a notch. And a bad problem becomes worse. 
The high road is one where you release the debt that is owed to you. You cancel the debt, all right, I forgive, and you find a way to transform it. We're going to take a quick look at a film clip. Uh, This is from a film called The Interpreter. Um, The beginning of the scene might not make loads of sense, but it's fine. It's towards the end of the scene that's important. Oh, we started already. Okay, I'll just give a tiny bit of context if that's all right. Yinka, is that okay? (laughs) Um, The scene starts with um, federal agent Tobin Keller questioning a lady called Sylvia Broom uh, as to why she is in pictures that, ha- that he had, has recently received. They imply that she was at a political rally led by the, elite, the leader of an opposing political party to the current Matobo um, African ruler, I think it's a fake country, Zuwani. Um, and Keller questions Sylvia's loyalty and mentions reasons why she might actually want to hate the current ruler, Zuwani, because her family was killed by one of his landmines. Um, the scene begins with her answering his questions. Go. What are you not telling me? What are you accusing me of? How do you feel about Zawani? Never mind, I don't care for him. I feel disappointment. That's a lover's word. What about rage? Of all the people that I've looked into since this thing started, the one with the darkest Zuwani history is you. It was his landmines that killed you. Shh. We don't name the dead. Everyone who loses somebody wants revenge on someone on God if they can't find anyone else. But in Africa, in Matopo, the coup believed that the only way to end grief is to save a life. If someone is murdered, a year of mourning ends with a ritual that we call the drowning man trial. There's an all-night party beside a river at dawn. The killer is put in a boat, he's taken out on the water, and he's dropped, he's bound so that he can't swim. The family of the dead then has to make a choice. They can let him drown or they can swim out and save him. The coup believe that if the family lets the killer drown, they'll have justice but spend the rest of their lives in mourning. But if they save him, if they admit that life isn't always just, that very act can take away their sorrow. Vengeance is a lazy form of grief. There's a high road and a low road. And we are called by Jesus to go on this high road. But this is hard to do. Everything in us just screams against it. If you're anything like me, when I'm hurt, and when I'm wounded, when I have been, from my point of view, the victim of injustice. Logic and and using my brain is just like a distant memory. I'm just shut down, I'm paralyzed, and then 
that stuff leaks out and hurts people around me. So this, if this is hard for you, then don't beat yourself up. This is, this is hard for all of us. And I would argue this is, not, this is not good news, but as you get older, this gets harder, not easier. Rollheiser, who I quoted a minute ago um, from his book, Sacred, this is from his book, Sacred Fire, about following Jesus in the middle years of your life. And he has a whole section on forgiveness because he just makes the point that when you're young and, and your youth, in your 20s, the primary temptation is, is lust. But as you age, the primary temptation is anger because you begin to realize all the different ways that you've been hurt. And he writes this, as we age, we can begin to trim down our spiritual vocabulary. And eventually, we can get it down to just three words. Forgive, forgive, forgive. The major task psychological and spiritual, for this second half of our lives, is to forgive. We need to forgive, and here's the paradigm, those who've hurt us, forgive ourselves for our own failings, forgive life for not being fully fair, and forgive God for seemingly being so indifferent to our wounds. We need to do that before we die, because ultimately there is only one moral imperative, not to die an angry, bitter person, but to die with a warm heart. The reality is that these two roads lead to two very different destinations. And again, only two things that you, the only two things that you carry with you past death and into the resurrection is the man or woman that you become through following Jesus and the relationships that you have with other people. In the end, that is what matters. Character and relationships. Two roads. Two very different destinations. Which one are you on? Why don't you stand? We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper.